You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Well, hey, good afternoon. It's a, it's a pleasure, it's a joy to be with you guys. Uh, my name is Mike Cosper. I'm the pastor of worship at a church in Louisville, Kentucky, called uh, Sojourn Community Church. Um, it's been, a, it's been a joy and a surprise in my life to be a worship pastor. I, I kind of stumbled into church planting. I was 19 years old um, and, and, and looking for a, a place to call home as my own church community and stumbled into this, this group of folks that were, were gathering in, a, in an apartment for prayer. Uh, and now, uh, 13 years later now, uh, I've, I've been there ever since. Um, and I, I got to say, it's, a, it's an honor to be here uh, it's an honor to be with, with you all and, and on this platform for a variety of reasons. One is that there's so many men that I, I have such deep um, respect for who are up here preaching this week and, and leading worship, um, friends, brothers, guys that are titans in my head like Coughlin and Chandler and Endeavor and, 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 and all these good brothers. Uh, there's so much good here in these days. So it's, it's, I'm humbled to be up here for that reason, but I'm also humbled to be up here just in front of y'all because I know how hard your job is. I know how tough your work is because I do it every week. I'm, I'm with you on a week-to-week basis, planning services and, and struggling through how to lead and, and how to best serve our congregations. And, you know, you come to worship conferences and, and you go places and you get training and you're told over and over again, it's not about you, it's not about you, it's about Jesus, it's not about you. And then you go home and you lead your worship service and, and everybody's like, oh, you were amazing, <laughs> right? Or, man, tough week, buddy, sorry, you know. <laughs> And it, it's, hard to, it's hard to sort of live in this world where it's like it's about you, but it's not about you, where we're trying to lead and we're trying to serve, but, but, you know, we get the emails about, man, I hated that song, or I loved that song, or why don't you ever sing this song, or how come you always sing that song? Am I, am I right? Like, you know how it is. We win big, we succeed big on a, on a good week, and, and the church celebrates, and it's great, and, and, and we stumble, and we fail, and we, we fall on our faces as often as not. Um, and it's a struggle. I, I, all of us have probably had moments in our lives uh, as worship leaders where we've experienced the, the Sunday morning train wreck, right? Uh, some of these are mild. Oftentimes they're very mild. It's, it's the, the acoustic guitar player put his capo in the wrong place and started the song, and then the rest of the band comes in, and it's like, right? And then there's the more, forgive me, I just blew out my voice on O Found of Love. Uh, then there's the more, um, the more, the, the worst train wrecks, right? The ones that, where everything just comes to a halt and, and, and it seems like what we, what, what we all find ourselves going, what are we even doing here right now? I have three memories that, that always bring me back to this. The first was I was, I was 16 years old. I've been playing guitar for about nine months and, and I was helping out with my, um, with my youth pastor. He was leading us in worship. And and he was, he was trying to guide us through this profound, intimate moment. And so, so you know, I'm strumming along, and he's praying, and, and it's, everything's really soft, and everybody's real, it's real intense. And he just, he comes to this point, and God bless him, he's a dear friend, loved me well, loves Jesus. He had a bad day. And he just comes to this moment in his prayer, and he says, oh, God, just pick me up and hold me in your lap and stroke me like a hamster. 
and, and, this is, and this is to a youth group, right? So everybody loses it. It's over. The, the intimate moment is gone. <laughs> I, re I remember another story. I was, I was at a worship conference, and, and, uh, and a guy had just taught on how worship was, was about revealing God and allowing people to respond. And, and you, we don't tell people how to respond, and we don't manipulate and all of this. And, and I'm not kidding. After teaching a, a great teaching on worship as revelation and response, he then got up and he, he went and he got his guitar and the band started playing and the bass drum, you know, the four on the floor, boom, boom, boom. It starts going and everything's getting, you can tell they're building up energy. And he, he literally says, I'm not here to manipulate you. I'm not tell you, here to tell you how to respond. But come on, everybody stand up with me and clap, 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 jump, 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 shout, shout, shout. And everybody's like, what is going on? And all of a sudden, the whole place goes nuts. Um, the, my favorite train wreck, though, is, was a personal train wreck. Um, it was about six weeks into the life of Sojourn as a church, and we had a lot of singers, and we were trying to figure out what we were going to do, how do we incorporate all these people. So we did this thing where we rotated singers out. We rotated them in and out on a, on a, on a fairly uh, regular basis throughout the service. So you might sing two songs, and then two, two more people would come up, and they'd sing a few songs. So we're in the middle of the service, things are rolling along, and, uh, and this dear friend of mine um, gets up to sing his songs. And I think in his head, he was like, this is gonna be amazing. This is gonna be a moment. And so we're playing the intro to this song, and, and I'm gonna mess with your mic stand, Matt, I'm sorry. And he, he walks up to the mic stand to, to adjust it, and I figured he was just adjusting it for his height, because he's about five feet tall. And, but he does this. And I started to think, well, that's odd. And then he grabs it here, and he, and, he, and he goes way out with it like this, right? And all of a sudden, I know where he's going. Because any Motorhead fans in the room, right? Lemmy for Motorhead. And so we're playing the intro to this song, and he's got the mic stand like this, and I'm like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And sure enough, he gets up underneath it, and he's all... <laughs> and, and the worst part about it, right? The worst part about it is that this is not like some power rocking thing. He gets up there and he does it and he goes, Father of lights, you delight. And, and so instantaneously, myself and the other guitar player and the other bass player, just in shame, we all just turn our backs. And we're... We're staring at our amps, and I just remember thinking to myself, this is why 20-year-olds don't plant churches. This is why 20-year-olds don't plant churches. <laughs> so, so all that's to say, we have a tough job. We have, we have a lot of pressure on us, and, and the pressure to, to perform, the pressure to make something happen is what leads us into these weird situations. I mean, you look at each one of them. The guy with the hamster, he's, he's trying to have an intimate moment. Right? The, the guy with the, the clapping, jumping, shouting, he's trying to cheer us on. He's trying to elicit a response. And, and my buddy, he's, he's just he's trying to have a spectacle, put something on display. Wow, people, blow him away. Misguided as they might be, I think they're, I think they're all well-intended. And what it boils down to for us to avoid these kinds of train wrecks, we've got to understand what are we doing when we step on the platform? What is our responsibility when we're planning, when we're praying, when we're preparing, and when we're leading? So today I want to talk about the role of the worship leader. What is mission accomplished for us 
How do we lead in order to accomplish that mission? And I want to do it by looking at two particular examples. The, the, the first I want to talk about <clears throat> the big story of worship in the Bible, worship throughout redemption history. The Bible is a story that leads us from creation, fall, to, to redemption, first foreshadowed in Israel, and then redemption in Christ, and then it leads us with, it leaves us with a picture of a, of, a, of, a, of a finished story, of a finished history where redemption is restored, where worship is restored, where life, the universe, creation, it's all restored. So I want to I first look at worship through that lens of that story, and we'll do that quickly, hopefully. And then, then I want to pivot a little bit, and I want to look at one particular worship pastor, a guy who, who had a real heart for worship in the local church, and look at his life and work as, as an example of somebody who understood this story and shepherded his congregation in worship in a profound way with that in mind. So we'll start with the redemption history lens. Well, I've, I've drawn some pictures here. They're very sophisticated. Um, but, I, but I want to start here. So worship in Eden. When God creates the world, God creates man and he places him in the garden. And <clears throat> there's a great, uh, there's a verse in Genesis chapter 2 where when God places Adam in the garden, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, Right? Let's take a look at the picture again. So what we have is you have Adam in the garden. The garden is, is, is this temple. The garden is this sacred space in the creation where God and man meet. He places Adam in the garden, and he says, I want you to work this, and I want you to keep it. And then uh, there's a theologian named G.K. Beale who talks about this, and he says, Adam was essentially the priest of this new creation world. Creation was a good thing, and it was reflective of God's glory, and, and, and mankind was sort of the pinnacle of creation because he was the image bearer. He was the one who, who most perfectly was, was built to, to glorify God. And so in the garden, God and Adam, they meet face to face. Adam's whole life, his whole work, it's all worship. It's all an affirmation that God is good, that creation is good, that it's all glorious. We don't see these set-apart worship services. We don't see sacrifices. We don't see offerings. In fact, the only song that we see before sin is a love song that, that Adam sings to his wife. His whole life is sung, is, is lived in the presence and the glory of God. N.T. Wright describes it like this. He says, we see a large slowly developing story of the good creator God making a wonderful world and putting a human in charge of it to rule it wisely and gather up its grateful praise. Now, what, we know what happens next, right? Genesis 3 happens. Sin enters the world, and things fall apart quickly. And from that point forward, we can't enter the presence of God without it being really bad for us. Uh, I, I think uh, the best illustration for this that I've seen is um, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Right? When the Nazis open the ark and, and the spirit of God, uh, the, God and his holiness comes out of the ark and, and it, it goes bad, faces are melting, it's, it's not good. So, so to protect us from that, we're, we're actually cast out of the garden. And God, God initiates with us yet again and, and initiates through, uh, through Abraham and, and, and through the people of Israel. He initiates a covenant whereby, once again, God and man can, can be in one another's presence. And where, where man can come before God and out of his life of rebellion, out of his life of sin, he can come before God, have his sins cleansed, and once again glorify God and worship God. So we see this with worship in Israel. Again, my sophisticated drawings should be helpful. You see the people of Israel who come to the temple where the priest is, 
The priest's primary instrument of worship here is his knife, which he's going to take and apply to the neck of that little lamb there. <clears throat> and he's going to sacrifice. So, so what happens is the people of Israel come to the temple, which is the sacred space. Now, in creation, sacred space is the garden. Sacred space is this, this set-apart world where, where God and man work and live. And, and Adam is told in the garden, fill the earth and subdue it. Expand the, the horizons of the garden. And that was what was meant to be, was that the world was going to be this place inhabited by God and man in community. When sin enters the world, that's, that, that vision is taken away. And so now the sacred place is this temple, this set-apart place where we can come and experience the presence of God, where, where a, a priest can make a sacrifice on our behalf and we're cleansed from our sins and God is glorified. And this was a beautiful and glorious thing. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, uh, in, in 2 Chronicles you see the temple being dedicated where Solomon has built this beautiful, glorious temple. And as he prays for the temple to dedicate it, uh, we see what happens when God shows up. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I think for many of us, we, we, we look at the worship in Israel and we see it as this bloody, primitive thing. They, they talk about how, how blood would run through the streets on the days of the, of the atonement, and it just sounds foreign and dark and primitive. But what we need to remember is this was the best thing going. God dwelled in Israel. God was present to them. They could, they could go to Israel and see God and see his glory put on display, and they could hear from him through his priests as the priests declared that their sins were forgiven. The Psalms of Ascents are, are Psalm 120 through 134. They're, they're these road songs that pilgrims would sing on their way to Jerusalem because they were so overjoyed that they'd get to see and be in the presence and glory of God. Now, I think the temple is important for us to think about as worship leaders because I think for many of us, intentionally and often, far more often unintentionally, we tend to think of what we do when we gather with the church as being a temple-like experience. Uh, in, in Catholicism, this idea is, is essentially continued, that worship is a visit to the temple. So you go to the cathedral, which is a sacred space that's been set apart, and you go to a priest who makes a sacrifice uh, of the, the Eucharist, the communion meal, which is broken uh, ceremonially, and that's a sacrifice that's being offered, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, given to God's people. So that's the place you go. That's where you experience the presence of God. And we look at that as, as Protestants, as, as Reformed folk, and, and we look at that and we say, we say, well, obviously that's an error. Obviously that we don't need the priest and we don't need this, that, and the other. But I think that there are ways that we're living out that same reality in the way that we think about worship in our churches. So take a look at this. And notice the big red question mark, right? So what happens for us is we go to church and, and we gather in this church building and, we, and we, we expect a worship leader to lead us into the presence of God. And so his primary instrument for, for leading us into God's presence is, a, is an acoustic guitar and the sacrifice that's offered is a song. And, and just think about the way we often hear 
conversations about worship, the way we often talk about worship. Man, you, they really led us into the throne room. Man, they really ushered in the Spirit of God. They really, they rent the veil. They took us behind the curtain. We saw this. You, you hear that oftentimes after, after worship, after you gather with the church. People say these, and they're trying to encourage you, and they say, man, you really led us into the presence of God. But I want to take you back to Raiders of the Lost Ark for a moment, right? Just imagine a guy, while the, while the faces are melting, there's a guy with an acoustic guitar singing, I could sing of your love forever, right? It's, it's not going to work out for him. He's going to melt just like everyone else. This... This is an impossible task. So hear this. Hear this. We talk about worship like this all the time. We've got, you hear, one of the things worship leaders hear all the time is like, you've really got to get your life and your holiness together so you can lead people into God's presence. That's temple talk. That's what they had to do to the priest. They had to ceremonially cleanse the priest so that he was holy enough to go into God's presence because if he wasn't, he'd die. It was life and death. We talk about that for ourselves as worship leaders. Well, we better, we better get our life and holiness right so that we can lead people into the presence of God. But again, that's, that's the talk of the temple. The fact is that only one person can make a sacrifice that genuinely leads us into God's presence and makes it safe for the rest of us. One person can tear down the veil. One person can, can, can bring us into the presence. So let's take a look at the, the next picture here. This is what worship in the church, when you understand it biblically, looks like. It begins with the fact that the Spirit of God fills the people of God. The Spirit of God indwells God's people, and he opens their eyes to see the gospel. And this is what the gospel tells us about worship. The next slide. is that God the Son is a perfect priest. And God the Son, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection... The, the, the story of the gospel, the story of the cross, is what enables us to enter the presence of God the Father. And so worship in the church is not this thing where we come to a place and someone is able to take us in, into the presence of God, into something that's inaccessible to us. Worship in the church is a much bigger reality. It's a Trinitarian picture. Take a look at this. The Spirit of God indwells the church. The Spirit of God opens our eyes to the glories of Jesus. And, and Jesus leads us into the presence of God the Father. And there we find mercy. There we find grace. There we find that we're adopted and accepted because of what God has done through Jesus. See, the beauty of this is that the Trinity leaves us no room for boasting in worship. The Trinity takes all of the pressure off of us in worship. Because who's the one doing all of the action here? It's God himself. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes. It's Jesus who makes us cleansed and acceptable. And it's God the Father who welcomes us, adopts us, loves us, fills us, and transforms us because of what we see in Jesus. The miracle of the New Testament worship is that like the garden, we have unfettered access to God now in Jesus Christ through the curtain of his flesh. Hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews 10. It says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there, just very quickly, in verses 19 through 22, the the author of the book of Hebrews is, is affirming for us that because of Jesus, we have this unfettered access to God, unhindered. We can boldly enter in to God's presence because of what Jesus has done. Then verses 23 through 25 reminds us that the people of God are nonetheless to continue to gather. But now, instead of gathering to worship, instead of gathering to to gain access that's unavailable otherwise, we gain to remember and hold fast our confession of faith, verse 23. Verse 24, we gather to spur one another on. And the word there is an aggressive word when it says to to, to continue to gather and encourage. It's it's almost saying kick one another, wake each other up, keep each other going, hold fast to the faith, spur each other on. Because the days are evil and because we're prone to forget the gospel. And verse 25, continuing to meet together because the days are evil and because falling away is a great danger to us all. In other words, we don't gather to draw near to God because Jesus has taken care of all of that. Instead, we gather because, as we just sang, we're prone to wander, we're prone to forget, and we need to systematically remember the gospel and encourage one another as a rhythm of life, week to week, day to day. The key to understanding the worship leader's role in the New Testament church is in knowing the difference between a gathering that's for worship, and knowing the difference between a gathering that's about access to God versus a gathering that's building up the church who's already living a life of unfettered access to God. Harold Best describes it like this. He says, we must conclude that the Christian needs to hear but one call to worship and offer only one response. These come exactly coincident with new birth, and despite our wanderings and returns to the contrary, they suffice for all our living, dying, and eternal outpouring. We do not go to church to worship, but as continuing worshipers, we gather ourselves together and continue our worship, but now in the company of our brothers and sisters. Jack Miller, who was a missionary and, a, uh, and an author, often talks about worship, often talked about worship uh, with, the, with the gathered church as being a time when we come together and, and the purpose of the, the meeting, the purpose of preaching, the purpose of worship is to see Jesus as more beautiful and more believable than our idols. That's our job. That's our responsibility, is to proclaim Christ and is to call a church that lives in a world full of idols and a world full of confusion and remind them that they are part of this grand, grand scandal where Jesus has led us into God's presence, where God has called us his children. Given this reality, given this reality, it's a totally different picture of what we're supposed to do. We're not gathering to, to, to make something spectacular happen. We're not gathering to, to, to get these sort of mystical, mysterious ideas right and, and, and have a spiritual moment. Instead, we're gathering to proclaim, to celebrate, to encourage. It's very practical. Put the gospel in front of people. Put the gospel in their mouths. Put the gospel in their songs, in their prayers, in their, in their, in their readings, in their scriptures. So we're going to look at one guy who did this very well with his life. He wasn't a rock star, and he wasn't even a musician. Here's an excerpt from a biography about him. It says, it's the year 1674. The place is God's House Tower, Southampton. 
A woman sits on a horse block outside the prison nursing her child. It's a hard seat, but not so hard as the hearts of her husband's persecutors. For he is inside, imprisoned for refusing to conform to the laws of the land relating to the worship of God. He is prepared to pay the price as he would gladly, as he would rather serve God than man. For he believes that scripture alone should be our guide in worship. He and his wife had been married but a year, and although he could not see the child's face, the sound of his crying would give him pleasure. How much more pleasure it gave him in later years when that child, who was born so small and sickly, was to influence the worship of the nation more than any other single man. That child being nursed outside of a prison in Southampton was a man named Isaac Watts. His father was Isaac Watts Sr. And at the time in England, the church was in great turmoil. The Reformation had had swept through, the the Anglican church had broken off, there had been all kinds of wars and battles, and and in the midst of it, uh, in the midst of it, this group rose up who who were referred to as the nonconformists. And what they believed is they believed that Scripture alone should be our authority for what it means to be the church, for what it means to gather as the church, to worship as the church, to live our lives together. And believing that and practicing that what was in direct conflict with the law of the land, which said that the crown was actually the head of the church. The crown was the ultimate authority for what it meant to be the church. And so it, at various times, there was persecution that broke out, soft persecution at times, hard persecution, jailing. Isaac Watts Sr. was, uh, was, a, was a citizen of this, of this town called Southampton. He was a, a landowner, and he was a deacon in a, in a congregationalist, nonconformist church. Uh, at the time that, that Isaac was born, he was in jail, and he was, he was jailed off and on early in Isaac's life uh, because of these things. Watts was raised up in, the, in, in this nonconformist church culture. It was a church culture that had a really, really high view of the scriptures, and it was a church culture that also had a really high set of expectations for pastors. If you read the Puritans who, who come out of this tradition, if you read the, the, the English particular Baptists, you see they expected that pastors would be men with great skill in understanding the Bible and great skill in applying the Bible to real life. They expected that the gospel was a real transforming power. And so what they wanted to see were churches that were genuinely immersing themselves in God's word, applying the gospel to their lives and being transformed. That's the world that Isaac grew up in. He grew up uh, in Southampton. He went to school in London. And when he was about 20 years old, he came back home from his studies, and he was going to spend a couple of years in Southampton preparing to become a pastor. Uh, he gathered with his, 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 fa- his family's church there, and when he went there on Sundays, he was troubled by the psalm singing. At the time, in, in the English-speaking world, you only sang the psalms. Even in these, most of these nonconformist churches, you, you only sang psalms. And they would sing these English translations. They're, they're referred to often as like the metrical translations. They were very accurate translations, and they were very sort of rigidly, uh, rigidly structured. And, and what Isaac found wrong with them were, were two things. First of all, they were boring. They, they didn't excite anyone. The, the poetry was, was, was precise, but it was flat. Secondly, he was troubled because the church is singing, but the church isn't singing about Jesus. They're singing promises, but they're not singing fulfillment. He's wondering, why aren't we singing the gospel? Why are we, why are we only singing about the promises of the Old Testament and not the hope and the fulfillment of these things in the New Testament? So he comes home from church one day, and he's, he's kind of complaining about it to his dad, and his dad famously said to him, well, 
See if you can do any better. <laughs> Isaac Watts wrote, Joy to the world, alas, and did my Savior bleed. O God, our help in ages past. I sing the mighty power of God, and when I survey the wondrous cross, he did better. <laughs> Charles Wesley actually said uh, at one point, who's, Charles Wesley is the other great English hymn writer who wrote hundreds of, of fantastic hymns, once said that he would have traded writing all of his other hymns could he have just been the author of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He began his project, Watts did, focusing on the Psalms. He began by, by taking the Psalms, and his hope for them was to, again, re replace the language of promise with the language of fulfillment. He describes it like this. He said, where the psalmist speaks of the pardon of sin through the mercies of God, I have added the merits of a Savior. Where he talks of sacrificing goats or bulls, I rather choose to mention the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God. Where he promises abundance of wealth, honor, and long life, I have changed some of these typical blessings, meaning foreshadowed type blessings, for grace, honor, and life eternal, which are brought to light by the gospel and promised in the New Testament. And I am fully satisfied that more honor is done to our blessed Savior by speaking his name, his graces, and actions in his own language, according to the brighter discoveries that he has now made, than by going back to the Jewish forms of worship and the language of types and figures. What he's saying is he's saying instead of singing about, about a king, instead of singing about King David, let's sing about King Jesus. Instead of singing about sacrifices of goats and bulls, let's sing about the cross. Instead of singing about conquering our geographical enemies who hate us, let's sing about the conquering of Satan, sin, and death. Psalm 103 says, Lord, how many are my foes, how many rise up against me. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. This is Watts' translation in his hymn, Psalm 3, of those same verses. He says, My God, how many are my fears, how fast my foes increase. Conspiring my eternal death, they break my present peace. The lying tempter would persuade there's no relief in heaven, and all my swelling sins appear too big to be forgiven. Arise, O Lord, fulfill thy grace while I thy glory sing. My God has broke the serpent's teeth, and death has lost its sting. Amen. What Watts did, what, what Watts did was he, he labored and labored to make the gospel clear, powerful, compelling, beautiful in front of the eyes of his people in the words that they sang in their songs. And it was scandalous for his time. Great thinkers, great men, guys like William Romaine, just absolutely opposed what, what Watts was doing because it, it, broke from what, uh, it broke from what was valued from, from, from all of these years and years of practice. But Watts said, no, 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 our authority is going to be Scripture, and the, script, and the Scriptures are telling us that we have this freedom to sing these new songs, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Eventually, that pastoral priority drove him to, to then not simply translate the Psalms, but then to begin writing new hymns, to begin writing songs that particularly articulated the gospel. <clears throat> so what can we learn from Watts? What are, what are a few things we can walk away from? Uh, I got four things for you. First, worship should be both wide and deep. Worship should be both wide and deep. Even a brief summary of Watts' songs reveals that he covered an enormous amount of territory. He sang songs of praise and adoration. He sang songs about God and his attributes. God is the creator. God is the, the judge. God is the merciful. 
But he also sang songs about the whole range of human experience. Songs about suffering, songs of lament, songs of forgiveness, songs of repentance, songs of joy, songs of thanksgiving. He, he translated even the imprecatory psalms, the ones that sing about crushing, uh, crushing our enemies, dashing them on the rocks, and all of that scary stuff from the psalms. He translated even those. And he helped his church to see that when, when the scriptures are talking about these things, it's foreshadowing this great victory of Jesus. So here's a challenge. Spend some time with Watts hymns or, or any hymnal. And go to the index and take a look at all the topics that are in a hymnal or go through, go through Watts' um, songs and, and, and make a list of the categories that you're experiencing. Then go to your own song catalog, the songs that you're singing in your church, and do the same thing. What are you singing about? Where are the gaps? Watts understood that when the church gathered, what they sang formed the way that they saw the world. We see it all the time. I, I, I see it all the time when we have baptism services at our church. We, we, uh, we always read the testimonies of those being baptized. And it's amazing how much the language of our songs that we sing on Sundays appears in the testimonies of our people. And that's because what we sing shapes the way we understand and articulate our experience as believers. So if we're singing a very narrow window of experience, if we're singing only about joy, or if we're singing only about lament, or if we're singing only about sin, and if we're not exploring the whole range of human emotion that's expressed in the Psalms, then, then we're neglecting parts of people's lives, and when they come to times of suffering, they won't know how to articulate it. I remember Harold Best saying this one time, that, that the contemporary worship movement hit a really bad speed bump at 9-11 because they didn't know what to sing on 9-12, and they went to the hymnal because the hymnal was ready to go. Uh, John Whitvliet has a, a phrase, he talks about soul food for the people of God. He, sa he said, we should think about our worship planning as preparing a menu, and we wanna, we wanna uh, over the course of months and weeks and years, we wanna give our people a well-balanced diet. We wanna give them songs that prepare them for joy, and we wanna give them songs that prepare them for their encounter with death. Number two, contextualization is about comprehension. Contextualization is about comprehension. What Watts was doing was contextualization, something that, that gets battled about on blogs all the time. <laughs> but what Watts was doing was he was understanding that these people don't speak this language. They don't understand these metaphors. They don't understand the images that are being put in front of them. I want to present the gospel to them in a way that is comprehensible, that they can understand, that they can cling to. He didn't water anything down by any means. Uh, his translation of Psalm 22 contains the lyric, all the kindreds of the earth shall worship or shall die. That is not seeker friendly. <laughs> <laughs> but Tim Keller says that contextualization, the goal of contextualization is to make the gospel clear, is, I'm sorry, the, the goal of contextualization is not to make the gospel easier to believe, but to make the offense of the gospel clear to both insiders and outsiders. What Keller's saying is he's saying, we, we, don't, we don't contextualize to make things easier on people. We, we contextualize actually to make it harder. We want them to understand exactly what the Bible is telling them when it tells them that they're sinners and that their only hope is in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to place a challenge to us because, again, I think with this crowd, it's probably true that we all have a love of, of theology. You're at the Doxology and Theology Conference. You hopefully like theology. And... And for those of us who, who are, are wired that way, we will often gravitate towards stuff that's, that's got a lot of weight, that's pretty dense, that's pretty heavy, that can be hard to comprehend and hard to understand. Is your congregation with you when you're singing those songs? 
Is your congregation with you? I, w- I was going to make a comment about the, uh, the Ebenezer verse of Come Thou Fount, and I was really glad when we didn't sing it today, so I didn't feel bad afterwards. But when you sing about the Ebenezer verse, right? Come Thou Fount, where it sings, Here I raise my Ebenezer. My challenge to you would be never sing that lyric without at least explaining it. If you're going to sing it, if you love the verse, great. Explain it. Make sure people understand that they comprehend what's being said. And that goes across the board. With, even with contemporary songs, with new songs, they can be loaded up with terms that are difficult. Make sure you take time to explain. And if it's, if it's not worth the time to explain, then it's not worth the time to sing it. Third, worship should be concerned with truth and beauty. But beauty is a servant of truth. For, for Watts, he was the consummate pastoral artist. He wasn't a musician. He was a poet. And what he understood was he understood that the power of beauty, the power of poetry would open people's eyes and wake them up to the gospel. That the beauty was a powerful tool for stirring affections and emotions. He wrote many times about the power of poetry to stir emotions, and it serves as a reminder that we're, we're not just committed, uh, that, that if we're committed to only truth and not to beauty, then we're missing out on the fact that God has wired us as aesthetic people. He's wired us to respond to beauty, to respond to, to, to beauty and art and, 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 and poetry and, and imagination. Our our reform camp is often concerned with truth while being critical and suspicious of beauty and creativity. But many of our heroes, many of these men of of the Reformation, these were men who loved poetry, who loved literature, and who understand that by, by capturing people's imaginations, you could capture their hearts. Finally, one final thought here. Worship leading is pastoral. Watts was first and foremost a pastor. He was first and foremost concerned with pastoring and shepherding his congregation. He wasn't a rock star, wasn't a musician. He wasn't trying to wow anybody with with talent and spectacle. He wasn't attempting to lead them into the holy of holies. His target was very clear. He wasn't a cheerleader. His target was very clear. His job was was to display the glory of the gospel. Display the glory of the gospel. Because he knew that worship was this, again, this Trinitarian world. And, and J.I. Packer talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit as a floodlight ministry. And, and if you want to experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit, then glorify Jesus. Put Jesus on display. Because, because what floodlights do is they light up something else. They exist to light up a building or to light up artwork or to light up whatever else. You don't notice a floodlight for a floodlight's sake. You notice a floodlight because it's illuminating something else. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. It exists to open our eyes to see the glories of Jesus. And Watts understood that, and so he went to every length he could to put Jesus on display. This nonconformist movement is something we could learn a lot from for our day. The nonconformist movement lived in a time where, where there was an acceptable, normal way of doing things. And these were men who said, no, we're going to be called we're going to be called to, to worship by the scriptures, and we're going to, follow, we're going to allow them to be the rule and, and to be what dictates what we do. We're not going to cater to preferences. We're not going to play the hits. We're going to trust God's word alone. And we're going to invite people and enable them to participate as the people of God by, by displaying Jesus. So that's my hope for us. That's my prayer for us that we could learn from, from men like Watts and that we could resist the temptation to simply, uh, to simply conform. Let's allow the scriptures to shape what we do, and let's, let's be fiercely committed to that, that glory of Jesus being on display in our churches. Let's pray.
Father, I am so thankful for the men who've gone before us, the saints who've gone before us. I'm immensely thankful for the, the saints that are here. And Lord, my prayer, my hope is that you would comfort us first by reminding us that the pressure's off and that our responsibility as pastors, as worship leaders, as, mu- as church musicians is simply to invite people to participate in a reality that is fully accomplished for them by Christ. And second, Lord, I pray that you would stir our passion and our affections for you, that you would make us fiercely committed and driven to, 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 to understand why we do what we do and to, to go to great lengths to put Jesus on display in a way that's clear, compelling, and comprehensible for our congregations. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.